first, a couple of side notes. Um, you may have read in your bulletin that I'm away on a trip with our youth, and I will be. I'm leaving right after church today to go with them. They left Friday morning. I'll be with them for the balance of the trip. So in case you were wondering how I could be in two places at one time. Um, and why I'm dressed all black, no, no stole. Uh, just a reflection of the fact that I rushed from teaching Sunday school to here. It has no higher meaning. Don't read anything into it. It's just I was in a hurry and I forgot. So there you go. Um, it's uh, summertime. I know a lot of you are trying to take it easy. You're going to and fro from western North Carolina. That's where it seems most everyone goes or maybe to the beach. Uh, we're trying to have a little bit of a slower, easier pace this summer, but I really feel for you because I think you are, uh, like me, you're bombarded with just constant headlines of, of news about unstable national leaders who have nuclear arsenals at their disposal, and you hear about vast sheets of ice melting in Antarctica and the sea level rising and terrorist plots and scandal and collusion and in high places, and then, you know, the underreported crisis, which is the swarms of insects that are plaguing us here in Jacksonville. Um, these plagues seem like, uh, they, they make Pharaoh's plagues seem rather puny, I think, all the things that we're dealing with today. And, and then today, in our text, we're going to read about something else, another kind of apocalypse, and I... I uh, I just feel for you before you hear it. Uh, Before you hear it, I think you need to hear some good news, uh, which is uh, the core testimony of our faith. Uh, It's written in several places in Scripture, in Deuteronomy and in Joshua, in the Gospels, in, in the writings of Paul. Words like this from Deuteronomy, that the Lord has rescued us out of slavery and out of Egypt, has liberated us from Pharaoh's hand and brought us into the land of promise, into our own land. And we are God's people, and he is our God. We are the sheep of his pasture, and he will never forsake us. Words like Paul wrote when he said, I I deliver unto you what I have received, the core gospel that Jesus Christ died for sinners, And then on the third day was raised and now reigns with God in heaven and of his kingdom there shall be no end. This core testimony is not uh, uh, proven, it's not explained, it's not a systematic theology. It's a story about what God has done and is doing. It's the decisive story of our lives that defines us. And so, especially in times of crisis and calamity, we return to that core testimony and remember it. And then we have stories like today, which uh, Walter Brueggemann would call the expanded narrative, the derivative narrative. It's, It's the writings that came a little bit later, somewhat removed from the events of the primal Story In this case, in the Gospel of Matthew, several decades after uh, Jesus' earthly life. It was, uh, and so 
It's a time when uh, the church is struggling with new historical circumstances, with how to live out the meaning of that core testimony, uh, and uh, trying also to, to order their new community, to, to have discipline and freedom. And so in the midst of that, they, their writings emerged. Not maybe with the same authority or same universality as the core testimony because so many of those writings were meant for specific historical circumstances. Hope you're getting that. It's important to hear that as we hear now the word of God from Matthew, the 13th chapter. It's a parable that Jesus spoke and then an interpretation. He put before them another comparison. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sows good seed in the field. But while everyone is asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat. And then he went away. And when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. And the slaves of the householder came and said, Master, did we not sow good seed in your field? Where then did all the weeds come from? And he answered, an enemy has done this. The slave said, do you want us to go and gather the weeds? And he said, no, for in gathering up the weeds, you would uproot the wheat among them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, collect the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. That's the parable of Jesus. We assume spoken by Jesus in his lifetime to the disciples around 30 A.D. And then we have something that follows, which many scholars believe is an expression of the faith of the early church. Then he left the crowds and went into a house, and his disciples approached him, saying, Explain the parable of the weeds in the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world, and the good seed are the children of the kingdom, and the weeds are the children of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So it becomes an allegory more than a parable. An allegory not about the kingdom of God, but about a final judgment. Just as the weeds are collected and burned up with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels. They will collect out of his kingdom all causes of sin and evildoers. And they will throw them into the furnace. And there they will, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Let anyone who has ears listen. See, I warned you. This... It's not uh, necessarily easy summer fare for us. The imagery in Matthew depicts fire and gnashing of teeth. Like all apocalyptic literature in the Bible, whether it's the Gospel of Matthew or Daniel or Revelation, the point is to motivate listeners to take decisive action. It's motivational speech. By painting such a picture, 
The parable functions in this way. To make anyone with ears listen. It would be a mistake to say to take such passages as this as literal descriptions of some chronology of what will happen at the end of time. For it was never the point of apocalyptic literature, all that imagery in the ancient world. Given the grip that images can have on our imagination, though, it's hard to shake loose all of that. And so we hear Christians even today saying things like, turn or burn. It would be a mistake to use this parable to justify identifying some people as wheat and others as weeds. And yet that's exactly how this passage has been done and exactly how many churches are seen by people on the outside. They think, oh, those Christians. Hmm. They just love to point their finger and judge other people. It would be a mistake to use Jesus' parable to justify religious wars for the benefit of the wheat. And yet that is precisely how this passage has been used. Interpreting the parable in this way, there was a 16th century church leader who justified the Inquisition and tortured and killed anyone considered guilty of heresy. He said anyone at the edge of the field could be pulled. You know, just one or two, or maybe six or eight, or ten or twelve, or indeed even a hundred weeds out there on the edge. We could pull them up without hurting the wheat. Justifying his actions. History has shown that when it comes to our interpretations of this or other apocalyptic texts, we've made a lot of mistakes and hurt a lot of people, including ourselves. In her, battle, in her book, The Battle for God, historian of religion Karen Armstrong observes that the apocalypse of September 11th can be seen as a logical outcome where history is seen in extreme view. In that case, it was Islamic fundamentalism. Since and before, as I've mentioned, we've had Christian fundamentalism that, that sees things in extremes. Even today in the news, we have extremes in, in the Holy Land, extremes of Palestinians and Jews killing each other. Roger Rosenblatt, a a, a journalist, says that the definition of a fanatic is somebody who does what God would do if God knew all the facts at the time. There are folks like me, Roger says, who are uncertain about what God is thinking. I believe in God all right, but I don't believe he's on our side or any side, reminds me a little bit of the language of the second inaugural of Lincoln. Roger goes on, he says, the essential act of faith, it seems to me, is wonder, a sort of involuntary fascination in awe. The most 
most religions make awe difficult because they're concerned with ideology, uniformity, loyalty, favoritism. Not the most useful tools for those who choose to live in mystery. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? That the first and fundamental religious experience is not certainty that I'm right or even that I'm safe or that I'm in or that I know the truth that God is on my side. The the fundamental experience is one of awe. The beauty and the mystery and the glory of life. The intersection with the numinous. Awe at the reality of all around me. What an interesting thought it is that the first use of religion is to allow an experience of awe and to remind ourselves that we are that we are not necessarily the ones who are right and everyone wrong, but to confess the mystery, to talk about it, to express with each other what we hear and see in the mystery. Just this week, we've encountered the awesome mystery, four incredible lives that we have celebrated that have impacted the people of this church for generations. Just this week, we have seen amazing storms in the sky. Awesome! We have hopefully experienced some moments of silence and humility. Last week, our youth experienced that last night at Montreta. Lake Susan, they're standing around the lake in the dark with candles lit all the way around the perimeter of the lake, standing there in the darkness with the candlelight. An awesome experience for them, I guarantee it. And now some other kids are on a whitewater river in a little boat going through the rapids. There's awe and mystery and beauty all around us. This week, I'm expecting another grandson. Golly, I can't say that. It's awesome. That's the fundamental experience of God. Getting back to the parable. Hildegard of of Bingen was a 12th century church leader, and she, she spoke often of the veriditas, the greening of things from within, similar to what we call photosynthesis. She knew that there was a readiness in plants to receive the sun and to transform it into energy and life. She recognized there is this inherent connection between the physical world and the divine presence. And this connection translates into something inside the soul, inside the seed of all life, an inner voice that calls me and you to become who we are, to become all that we are. It is this life wish, this whole-making instinct 
that is in the wheat and perhaps in the weeds. And so Jesus says, wait, wait. Maybe in time, even the weeds could become wheat. Haven't you ever hoped that for yourself or for your kids? Maybe in time. We're not competent, Jesus says, to perceive the inner work of the Holy Spirit in human lives. We're not to judge. Not that there is, isn't some kind of right or wrong, healthiness or unhealthiness, darkness or light, but that perhaps there is a love and a hope that is beyond what we know for the weeds. We hope and we love. I know, I know of a family who has a son who is struggling and they know they can't fix it, but they pray for him. They've tried to wrestle with what to do. He's living in a, in a distant place and, and so they pray and they hope that whatever weeds are there by the grace of God could become wheat and bear fruit. And that's a part of what we do at RPDS is we pray that whatever weediness there might be and there is in all of our lives and all of our families that the love of God and the grace of God in time will bear good fruit. And so we hope and we wait for God's fulfillment. And while we wait, we work. We don't just wait for a heavenly city to come down, shining streets and peace. We look at our city and we think about our streets and what can we do now to bring peace and safety We look at a future where there will be no more tears and no more death, and we look around at the gun violence and the tears that are shed every day in our cities. And we know we're called to not just wait for a future, but to begin to enact it now as God gives us ability to do so. And so we're called... I believe, to have a balance, a kind of holy dissatisfaction with the weeds in our lives and around us, and a trust in the gardener whose love for the wheat is so expansive and generous that it extends. Let us pray together.